nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Hello and welcome to a weekend edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. We are here on a Sunday and we've just come back from the year 1994. We went into a time machine and we went back to 1994 to October. And this was basically on the back of the previous season where Real Madrid did not have a good year. They came fourth in the league. Uh, they had suffered a 5-0 loss to Barcelona. So new season, new era. They had just signed Michael Laudrup. And they traveled to La Romareda to face Real Zaragoza. And making his debut um, was a 17-year-old kid um, from Madrid, which we will get to. Um, joining me, Kian Sobani, for this episode is Matt Wiltsey and Omar Vin. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Excited to talk about uh, Raul's debut. I guess one question I have right off the bat um, is, how was a 17-year-old already given the number seven shirt? It's a great question, um, and, and it's funnily enough very transitory for like a brief uh, for a year because the year after Juan Schneider, who ironically actually scored in this game for Real Zaragoza, um, came to Real Madrid the following season and took the number seven shirt and famously was a, the most random player to like pretty much put the seven on for one year. Like this was probably more more interesting or just as funny as Mariano getting it this this year or last year. Um, I'm trying to think now. Now, now you piqued my interest. Now I need to find out who was wearing the seven seven before um, Raúl. But um, actually, I I I'm, I might just scan my book because I actually wrote about all the number sevens. So I might I might scan it while you guys are while you guys are talking. Um, Om Arvin, how you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly why Raúl got the number seven, but like. Even though he actually had a pretty bad debut, which we'll talk about given the amount of like just absolute sitters he missed, his touches like outside the box, like you could tell like, man, this kid was good. Like he was mm. really, really good. Um, so like, yeah, not sure exactly why he got the number seven, but like, you know, he definitely deserved it at that point in time. Like he had a future ahead of him, just even just looking at how he was playing this game in a game where, you know, he was obviously extremely nervous and it hurt him a little bit. Like he was an extremely talented player. And I mean, I, I think we forget how fast Raul hit the ground running. Some of his peak years came like very, very early on in his career. Like he had he was an incredible player that young, and I sometimes I think like, especially because a lot of younger Real Madrid fans maybe only caught the tail end of Raul's career, they don't realize just how much of an institution he was at Real Madrid. Because essentially, you know, he was a massive, massive figure at Real Madrid for like close to two decades. I'd need to actually do a little bit of a deeper dive on this the jersey thing because before Raul Butragani had number seven, but also these two overlapped this year in the year we're talking about, and Raul eventually took Butrogano's place in the starting lineup. And if you look at the jersey numbers in this game, they're just, they just go 1 to 11. So I wonder if there's something here we're missing in terms of like, well, maybe that they, they were just handed out differently in that era. Because literally, mm. if you look at the starting lineup, one Buyo, two, two Kike, three Luis Enrique, four Ier, five Redondo, and it goes on, six Sanchez, Raul, seven. And... So I don't. I, I'd have to. I'd have to like investigate to see what that means actually. Like if there were if that this was a different era of like how they handled the jersey numbers. Um, yeah. Raul. Should, yeah. Should we start out with the starting eleven? Yeah, I mean, you kind of alluded to it right there. Yeah, I kind of. I kind of gave out half of it, but I think also deciphering the starting eleven is is another story after you actually look at it. So, uh, Matt, I know you chose this game. Um, which to me is like this was most famously this was Raul's debut, and less famously this is just a, one of the few games Real Madrid lost on en route to the title title race. Um, but you chose this game, so why don't you give us as much background as you possibly can heading into this? 
Okay, so this was obviously, as you mentioned, Keon, this was a early game. It was in October. Um, famously, uh, Valdano had come to Raul. Uh, I, I think it was on the bus ride back from the previous game and said, hey, I'm thinking about potentially giving you your debut or playing you. And Raul said back to him, um, if you want to win, you'll play me. And as a 17-year-old saying that and having just the, the confidence and the arrogance to say that is, is something else especially while you're playing for Real Madrid. And obviously, he got the start in this game. Uh, the formation was, I would say, uh, you get, and you guys can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I, I saw it as a 4-4-2 diamond. Um, but the diamond in the midfield was uh, with wingers. It was a right mid and a left mid. So you had Buyo on goal, uh, Kike Sanchez-Flores at right back, um, Luis Enrique at left back, Hierro and Sanchez at center backs, uh, Redondo, Fernando Redondo as the defensive mid. Um, Michael Laudrup in the attacking mid role. And then Michel on the right wing. Um, Amavisca on the left wing. And Zamorano and, of course, Raul up top. That sounds right to me. I mean, I think... It, yeah. Because when, uh, when I saw the starting lineup initially, I was like, well, somewhere we're missing a left back. But then I remembered there was also... This was interesting because on transfer market it's listed as a three-five-two with like just Kike, Hierro, and Sanchez at the back, which didn't make sense to me. One because Kike Sanchez Flores is an attacking right back, and he's not going to really play in a three-man backline. And if he is, you might be in trouble. And then I remembered Luis Enrique was a transitory wing back a lot. Like he played on the right a lot, um, basically after Chendo's decline and before they signed Kike. So he played right back a lot. And then this particular season, Mikel Lassa was the, the regular left back. Um, and he when he was injured, it was either that playing time would either go to... Um, there's a, there's, it was a left back from Castillo who played seven games that year. I don't remember his name now. Forgive me. Um if it was either him who who wasn't really trusted in bigger games, or Luis Enrique would go to the left back. So Luis Enrique actually played his fair share amount of games at left back, which is so maybe surprising and and certainly not ideal when you look at this game. Yeah. So when Matt said four four two diamond, I initially was like, whoa. But when you like when you talk clarified it as kind of like a diamond with wingers, it's not that different from me seeing it as a flat four four two because essentially yeah. it was Laudrup playing as an attacking midfielder playing as an attacking midfielder in a central midfield role so like he like had a ton of freedom to go forward you know move to either wings while redondo was kind of just like holding things down in the center so yeah it was you know however you see it it was like it it, it was some variation of 442 with loudrup you know being like kind of like being the driving engine of the attack with redondo playing a little deeper i think it's kind of fair to describe it that way yep um Yep, that sounds about right. Um, I think, to me, kind of like looking how this unfolded, I thought the second half was a little bit better, but I, I it felt like there was a lot on the shoulders of Laudrup and Redondo, um, and I felt there was there wasn't they didn't really have control in the midfield with this lineup because Redondo he sat a bit deeper as you guys said, and Laudrup did not have a good passing game in this game, and there was kind of a disconnect, and I felt like if you know Michel and Amabisca. Uh, Visco who went on to score and Mitchell had, like, had his moments, but for large parts of this game, I didn't even realize he was on the pitch. Um, maybe if they had that like Martin Vasquez presence who wasn't in this game, then they would have been able to control the midfield a little bit better. But there were, so, there were a lot of interesting storylines in this game, I think. Um, maybe we should just start with going through the Raul performance because this podcast is, let's be honest, primarily about him and there's, there's other subplots. Um, um within like what'd you say like the first five seconds of this game Raul gets a touch and a chance on goal (laughs) yeah it Raul Raul like impressed me with like just how quick he was because really as as a Real Madrid fan the only season I caught of Raul was like the last season 2009-10 didn't really play it was more of like you know, okay, this is a transition to Ronaldo's team. And obviously, I, I've seen, like, other games from Raul, but not this early. He was incredibly fast. He definitely fancied himself as a dribbler at the time. His ball control was great. Mm. But every time he got into the box, it, it was just, 
it was terrible. Like, I don't know how, how else to, like, describe it. The, the first chance you're talking about, like, it's literally the first attack of the game. Um, You know, vertical pass up the field. Zamorano plays Raul through on goal. And I don't even know if he gets a shot off. It's just, like, it, it just like the ball just flies away from goal as soon as he touches it. It's like he didn't even control it properly. And then throughout the game, he gets, like, what looks like are going to be tap-ins or one-versus-ones, and he just can't finish. And I think it was simply down to nerves. But at the same time, when, when he wasn't in the box, he looked so confident. And he looked like, you know, years above his age. So, yeah, it was it was just a weird game. If Raul even puts in, like, 50% of those chances, we win the, we win this game. I'm not exaggerating. Like, yeah, I, I tend to be conservative. Well, I tend to be conservative when talking about goal-scoring chances because I'm always thinking about, like, XG. But the chances Raul missed were, like... Like from 0.5 minimum to like 0.8, 0.9 xG. That's that's how good of a chance they were. Well, and I think I mean I think we can take it even for I mean I think we for the listeners who haven't seen this match I think we really really have to emphasize like he missed I I counted at least five what you would call sitters almost like and yeah. he did all the hard work like yeah. he made his off the ball movement was incredible I I kept noting that like. Wow, he kept getting himself into these incredible positions, but then when it came to the finish, he just—I don't know what happened. You just—I was blowing my cheeks. Out. I was in shock. I was just like, "How is he missing all these chances?" Because for some reason, I—I I knew to score this game, but for some reason, I had in my head that I—he scored on his debut, and so I was expecting like one of these to go mm. in, and then I was like, "Oh my god, he missed all of these chances!" They literally Real Madrid went on to lose this game three-two, but they could have easily been four-four-one up at halftime. One of the the things that you know, I I knew all, I knew about all these chances he had missed heading into this because I had written an entire article about him, and this was a huge part of the article was like his first of all, I guess his balls to want to be so badly a part of this and really want to send out, and I think that contributed to like his. It felt like he was over eager a little bit, like you, the in no world like. Did, would he miss those chances later in his career? Obviously, even like the next week, he went, he scored his first goal finally against Atletico, and it was like an outrageous goal. He even had an assist that game, very identical assist to the one he had to Zamorano in this game, actually. Um, but he, it seemed like he was a bit too overeager, and I wonder if like after this one, like you know, Butroganu and Valano talked to him and were like, just calm down, like you can you can take your chances, just gotta stay composed in front of goal, but. The build-up to it was all amazing, and I think you, I think you saw what he was about in this game in terms of the off-ball movement, the intelligence. Um, I mean, his passing was pretty good. One thing about Raúl, he was not like the most daring passer. I'd say he'd always look for the most obvious pass, but then his movement in, in spaces to get open would would kind of make up for it. But um, I think basically you saw things in this game that stuck to, with him for the rest of his career. And then the finishing, which didn't stay a part of his game, it you know it kind of came came to him, and he ended up you know winning, I believe, a couple a couple uh, top scoring titles in the league before his career was over. Um, so his and and what about his? What did you think about his connection with Zamorano? Another player who's like very impressive every time I've, I've seen him play. But I thought his connection with those two together was was pretty good. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought their uh, the connection was was good as well. I mean, there was that one moment. Um, I think Zamorano, I guess, was offside, or was it called offside? Where they did a quick one too. It looked like Raúl was offside, but it, I don't think they ever called it. They um, did. The, the, the very first chance Raúl had after a few seconds was called for offside. I believe. Okay. But I don't know if that's. Well, the one I, th- I think about. this was later. I'm talking. I think in the second half okay. they had a quick one too. I don't think it was called. Raúl was off, but he didn't. They didn't get called, and Raúl set up Zamorano, and he missed a one v one. It was just. It was ridiculous the amount of chances missed. But there was. I had actually watched this game the first half um, last weekend, and so I saved the second half for this weekend. But after the first half, there was one player that I just couldn't wait to talk to you guys about because I was just blown away by him. Um, I just wasn't expecting him to be so good. And his connection with Raul was incredible. Was uh, Kike Sanchez Flores at right back, the number two. He was just, I I thought he was playing just uh, unbelievable. He set up multiple chances, cut in, would play the through ball. Uh, Raul hit the crossbar off one of his crosses. He was quick. He was fast. I mean, everything he did, I was just so impressed. And I thought, he, I thought that connection actually was 
um, the one of all the players on the field that impressed me the most. I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but that's that I was just I was blown away by Kike Sanchez Flores. Yeah, so I thought I thought he was really good offensively. Like especially, you know, when when he was connecting with Raul, it was him cutting inside, dribbling dribbling past like the initial defender, sucking the center backs towards him and then playing these like nicely weighted through balls to Raul. Um offensively, he was definitely I think like maybe top 4, top 3 offensive player on the day. You know, talking about like Raul Zamorano, maybe Loudrup, even though Loudrup wasn't that good today, especially in the first half. Um, but it was it was like a double-edged sword for me because he was so impressive going forward, but I genuinely thought he was awful defensively in certain situations. Like, especially, I mean, he was just caught sleeping with his positioning so many times, um, especially on the second goal where they played a switch all the way from the right and like he was just nowhere to be seen. And like, that's like when... On that switch, there was there's a player on the left hand side of the box volleys it back into the box, and you know basically the whole defense is sleeping there. But I thought like there were numerous kind of situations like that where Kike Sanchez Flores was kind of like he was doing a lot offensively, but then like he'd he kind of sabotage himself defensively, even on the first goal, right? Like it's him, you know, running up the pitch on the right hand side. He actually loses possession, and they counter, um, you know initially through the right through the left of Real Madrid's defense and they play it back to the right and Kike Sanchez Flores is still nowhere to be seen um and and Snyder you know gets on the ball eventually and Hero doesn't contest any scores so it was like it was like um, like one moment where I'm really impressed with what he's doing and then another when like Real Madrid lose the ball and I'm like uh it kind of looks like you're a liability in this game so like yeah it was it I wanted. I was initially thinking I was gonna say he was man of the match, but I just think he made too many like def- mistakes defensively for me to say that. So like, you know, maybe overall, it was almost like he had a neutral performance because I think some of the things he did defensively canceled out offensively. But yeah, it was it was sort of surprising to me to see how many chances he was res- directly responsible for that Raul really should have finished off. Well, do you think he was? It was more a circumstance of the system he was playing in because i mean i just think him as a player i guess that's what i'm more alluding to just i was i wasn't even aware and shame on me i didn't even realize kike sanchez flores played for real madrid and uh, <laughs> i was when i saw him on when i saw this guy kike uh, on the right back i was like who is this guy and then i looked it up i was like oh my god that's kike sanchez flores and he i was just really impressed with him as a player i agree i think the second goal i completely agree that was he didn't put enough pressure. Um, I think it was on Pedraza who just took a one-time cross. Um, but that, again, that was the whole defense. Uh, the first goal, I, I can't remember if he had any fault. But I think a lot of that was that system because you think about it in transition. I mean, he's up the field. You can't expect him to get back 70 yards. And that's a lot of the system. Like Redondo maybe should be covering over the – or the back line should be able to shift and somebody should be able to drop in. And that's – they were just so – they had – it almost – Michelle and um, – Michel and uh, Amavisca were just nowhere to be seen. In this yeah, game. I mean, defensively was... was really odd. Amavisca and Michel were almost never there in the picture, so I guess that's fair. Um, systemically, I think that's a fair point, but also, like, I'm just not aware of, like, in this era of, like, there ever really being in, like, almost every team, like, a system to kind of protect against marauding fullbacks, which is why I think so many people still have this perception that if you have a really offensive fullback, there's no way you can be solid defensively. To me, that's more of, like, a modern concept. Like, I think, like, the develop the development of counterpressing, it, it, it was created for a number of reasons, but I think primarily to kind of, you know, protect against the fact that you have, like, so many advanced players in the wide areas, especially the fullbacks, so because you're automatically like kind of exposed when that happens, why not just, you know, do your defending where everybody already is so you have time to recover your defensive shape? That wasn't really a thing then. So like it was so it was kind of a situation where like I think either managers accepted that there would be a trade off and they didn't have a way to deal with that. Or you kind of play more like Luis Enrique did in this game where like you're not bombing forward as much. And so therefore you have more security. Um, so, yeah, I. Be, but but because that didn't necessarily exist, there doesn't necessarily mean it was all on him. So yeah, I agree with that. But I think, I don't know. I think maybe just the first and single are like in my mind so much that I like really penalized him for that. Um, but yeah, I forgot to I forgot to mention 
like you said, that Michel and Amarisco just did no defensive work whatsoever. And that surprised me because the previous game we watched was Michel playing at center back. So I kind of assumed, well, his defensive work rate would be good. And maybe it was, you know, throughout the season. But in this game, like, Kike Sanchez Flores had no help whatsoever. Well, it's interesting because Eduardo and I did another game from the season, the 5-0 against Barca at the Bernabeu, and Amavisca was like everywhere. He's, he dropped deep in win dis- uh, possession, and sometimes he'd be as like the defensive midfielder just popping up like in between the center backs to, to race and win the ball in transition. And then he'd run over to the right wing as an outlet. He'd be assisting Zamorano on, on at least one of those goals. And and I didn't honestly in this game I didn't feel like now maybe like the team was still kind of trying to find its feet or whatever it was still early in the season and funny enough this game was the last game they lost until May that year and they ended up winning the title anyway but I think I don't know I didn't really feel much of a presence from any of the wingers or fullbacks apart from Kike offensively like Luis Enrique barely noticed him on the pitch he really popped on the third goal that Riamja conceded. The, the game winner for Zara goes so that um was it Schneider who scored that winning goal? I can't remember. Oh no, it was Gus Poyet of yeah. all people. Um and Luis Enrique's position was horrible on that and he just failed to track him. But I felt like even Amavisca and Michel weren't really involved as much. Like obviously Amavisca scored off the header. Michel had that one cross to Raul hit the crossbar. But there wasn't that much of a presence from them to, to be honest, on the wings, I I didn't feel. I just felt like maybe more of a central presence was needed. I felt like progressing the ball was it wasn't entirely difficult, but given that Laudrup didn't pass that well, sometimes it was just on Redondo to carry the ball and slip through like multiple players, like just like the eel elegant dribble dribbler he is. Um, he's he was really fun to watch, by the way, especially in that second half. But I didn't. I thought the wingers could have been better. Or maybe the system failed them. And I and I do agree. I don't think the transition defense was great from for many of them, especially on the goal you see where where there's no one helping out. So I di- I did think like maybe the only kind of semblance, uh, almost resemblance of of a transition defense was Redondo staying pretty deep on uh, on those Zaragoza attacks and dropping like in between the center backs at times. But other than that, I I, I did I do agree with you. I felt like maybe there was something else needed in that midfield apart from playing with the width that Real Madrid did. So, so, so I guess I'll start with Michel. Like, I largely agree, um, you know, he wasn't that much of a factor, but there were, I think he, he did have more than that one cross. There were, like, two or three that came in, and, like, I didn't know who crossed it until, like, um, Butrigueno and Valdano, who were, like, kind of commentating the game, but it, like, yeah, just that was more weird. sounded like they were, like, yeah, they were like, like they were just talking about like Raul's career in the middle of the game, so it was a little distracting. But like they would say, like, oh, that was Michel who crossed it. So he had like two or three moments in the second half. By and large, it, it it was not exactly like what I what I would have expected from a player of his quality. And I just got the sense that Real Madrid just didn't take this game as seriously as they should have, or they were just switched off for some reason. And it's not like Real Zaragoza at this time were like bottom feeders or anything. Like I checked after the game and they, they ended yeah. up seventh, you know, in La Liga and, you know, seventh tied with sixth and fifth and only three points off fourth and third. So they were a really, really good team in La Liga that season. So it yeah, I mean I just don't know how else to explain. Like, the defending was just really, really awful. Like, we've seen some bad transition defense, you know, in our times in the last 10 years at Real Madrid. This may have been worse than anything I've ever seen. So it just seemed like a game where everyone switched off. I don't think Hierro was particularly good. Um, You know, Manolo Sanchez and... um, Luis Enrique, I, I think you might have been referring to the second goal when you were talking about Enrique's mistake because the third one was like off a set piece. And then oh, like you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah second one, sorry. Yeah, so the second goal is like when they come through the right and like, um, I forget who it is. Someone made a blindside run off of Enrique and into like and, and like into um, Manolo Sanchez's blindside and both of them just completely lost him. You know, and it eventually led to the goal. And it was like just the defense, you know, falling to sleep along with um, Kike Sanchez Flores on the left-hand side. And so, yeah, it was just, I it really just seemed like people weren't paying attention that game. And when I saw Laudrup missing as many passes as he did in the first half, it just kind of signaled to me that the only one who really, or the only two players that I could say really seemed like 
you know, mentally involved were Raul and Redondo for me. Redondo didn't really make that many mistakes. And Raul obviously was like hyper involved, maybe too much mentally, um, because this was obviously his debut. But other than those two, it just kind of seemed like everyone was just there. And, you know, either they expected that they were going to win fairly easily or they just they just weren't up for it on the day. Yeah, and I think, I mean, adding to both your points about Michelle, I thought it was such a contrasting performance from what we saw the other game just that we reviewed the other weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously he's six years older here. Yeah, He's 31. He was 31 playing right mid and just it, it felt like he was older. It felt like he was a little bit less mobile um, and just maybe – finishing off kind of the twilight of his career i don't i don't know that's just kind of the feeling i got i don't know how the rest of his season went this year but um i i mean i agree that in the first half laudrup was kind of underwhelming but in the second half i thought he turned it on i mean there were so many times where he i mean he just impressed me so much with some of the just silky moves getting out of tight spaces uh, always looking for the vertical pass he really, I mean, Phil Ball was on the money when he uh, compared him to Odegaard because I really, I can totally, totally see the comparisons. They're very similar in that regard. and They can quick, quickly get out of nice, delicate touches, quickly get out of a tight situation and then play that vertical through ball. I, 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 I could watch Lodger play all day. I still think like nothing, there are very, very few things that impress me more in the history of football than just watching Lodger drop his shoulder and then do doing whatever he wants from there. Like, he can just send, like, a defender in the opposite direction he wants to go in just by dropping his shoulder. And it's just, like, it's it, it doesn't it shouldn't be that easy, but he makes it look really easy doing so. And I don't even think this is one of his better games by any means. I, I do agree. I think he came alive in the second half a little bit, but some of his passing still was... It, it just... It wasn't really true loud drop, I don't think, but it was... But some of his touches and dribbling were still, were still pretty fun to watch. Um, yeah, in the second half, there was this one moment where he took on like five defenders or something and he almost got through and like Butragueno and Valdano just kind of like stopped talking to admire it. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, yeah, he, in the second half, there were definitely some moments where you just saw like, wow, this this guy is, is on another planet. Um, I think what impresses me about Laudrup the most is just how versatile he was over his career, like trying to say... Laudrup was a central midfielder. He was an attacking midfielder. Like, it, it it doesn't really work as a description. You kind of have to break it down into segments because people forget when he was at Barcelona, he played as a false nine often. Um, you know, he played at he played at the tip of the spear and he dropped in and kind of did the thing that like Messi has become famous for doing and Francesco Totti was also famous for doing before. Like, this guy could legitimately play basically any position. You know that that wasn't defensive um and that just i think speaks one to his technical quality but also just his positional intelligence you know when 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 he was on his day he could he could see like three four moves ahead of everyone he knew exactly you know the passes to make you know whether he had to drop whether he had to dribble and it basically just enhanced the entire team dynamic in a way that we've seen very very few players be able to do and in terms of like the Odegaard comparison I think that's an apt one, but what differentiates me when I between those two when I watched him was Laudrup was just he was physically very impressive. He was a big guy, um, whereas technically similar to Odegaard, but it's like Odegaard if he was like big and strong and able to take, you know, the the multiple crunching challenges that were thrown at him this game, which kind of looked like they were trying to like break his ankles. Like, I think that was kind of part of the reason he had somewhat of a tough time in this game, um, but. I, I mean, I, I don't know, correct me if this is like kind of an off comparison, but he reminded me of Zidane a little bit just yeah. because one, because of the size, but just the way he glided around the field it sh- and like kind of the underrated acceleration when he got going, it, it just kind of looked like another version of Zidane to me. It's like a yeah, different kind of elegance to Zidane to me, but I, I see what you're saying. But like their their frame, their build, their height, it's, it makes it look that way. I think Loja probably had a little bit of a lower center of gravity. Um but if you ask me, like in terms of like elegance and like just gliding with the ball, those are always my top two: Zidane and Zidane and Laudrup. In terms of like aesthetically, how you know just watching them dribble, the watch the way they carry themselves off on the pitch, it's it's really really impressive to to see them. And even like now, all this time has passed, and 
it's still impressive. You know, it's not outdated. I, this is why I think, you know, you you stretch out Laudrup's career. He he had a great World Cup '98 too, and I you know it's not. I guess it's not that long ago to be honest. Um, but I do think he's one of the more underrated in term on like the smooth the smooth rankings. Like anytime you see this discussion, <laughs> Zidane Zidane always pops up as like you know the guy like who's smooth and stuff. But rarely does anyone mention Laudrup, and I think he's he's up there for sure. Like you can. You can easily pass half a day on a, on YouTube compilations on Laudrup. Just like his, there's like mm. hour ones on his passing, on his dribbling. Like it's it's it was amazing. We should definitely do more Laudrup games if we can. Um, Matt asked also about like Michel, how many games and stuff. Like, but at this stage of his career, this was one of only thirteen league games he played in that season. Okay. A drop from like the thirty plus pretty much every year he's played in in the league yeah. up to that point. And Martin Vasquez. Um, you know, if, I don't know where he was in this game. It's not like we get really, uh, you really have to like really dig deep into the archives of the internet, I think, to find out why he wasn't playing. But then I don't think Putrogenu and Badal were going to commentate that to us. Or maybe they didn't. I missed it. I don't know. Um, but I assume if he was available, he would be playing this game over Michel um, and provide something different to, to the midfield. But um 94-95 season, Martin Vasquez played 31 games, and this was not one of them. So, yeah. And, I mean, speaking of the Quinta del Butre, obviously, um, Pardesa was on, had transferred to Real Zaragoza at this point and uh, was starting mm. this game. And I thought he played pretty well. He, I, it was him, right, who had the first-time cross on the second goal um, where we were saying yeah. Jay probably should have came over. Uh, to press him, but I mean, I thought for the most part, I thought he was really good, and um, honestly, Real Madrid could have used a player like that on the left side in this game, at least. Wasn't Solana, um, who played left back for Zaragoza, didn't he also used to? Didn't he also play for Real Madrid? Mm. Chucho Solana, I don't know if. Well, just I know he, I know he was at least a Castilla player. Um, but yeah. Anyway, it's interesting the yeah, amount of it like. it was. Uh, it was him. Yeah, he he okay, went. He yeah. went from Real Madrid to Real Zaragoza in 1991. So we have Solana and then Pardesa, as Matt mentioned, and then Snyder comes the next season. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And then uh, I mean, it's interesting to know Gustavo Poyet. Most people also know him for his Chelsea days, but. Um, you know, he made his name initially as Zaragoza and was a really good player. Um, let's see. Um, I actually thought, I don't know, I, Hierro was interesting because, well, I thought he wasn't at his best. He also, I mean, this you saw this version at Hierro too old, when he was older, like in 2003 and against, um, you know, that Metro Snedda game we watched, whereas like you can clearly tell that he's physically like unable to keep up and makes mistakes but he also does like these three or four things a game where it's like spectacular challenges and like the art of defending comes into like full front and you can see like how good he was defensively i thought he had moments in this game where his tackling was really good and his interventions at the top of the box were pretty good um so i yeah i I don't think it was his best game but i thought it was like you know, just kind of like the kind of the shambolic nature of this game. I think, I think he's he's a defender that was tested a lot throughout his career. And I wonder because I like I was thinking about this. Like, think about twenty, thirty, forty years in the future, and like whoever, if young Luca is now running the Managing Madrid podcast, and he's looking back and watching games with Sergio Ramos, and he sees how inconsistent Sergio Ramos was and like thinking like maybe he watches three games. He's like, why, why does everyone rate this guy? And maybe it's a couple games where he wasn't so good. Cause for me in this match, he, I didn't think he was that good. And I've now watched a good handful of games. And I think the only one where he was solid was that man United game. We watched Kian. Yeah, um, when he was really old. Too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, in this game, I thought he was pretty rash. I mean, he got away with that one tackle um, mm. in the box, which I thought was a penalty for sure, but they didn't call it. Um, and I just – I don't know. I just didn't uh, – On he was a little bit late on, I think it was the first goal, trying to close down. Uh, granted, as Ohm pointed out, the whole defense was just 
it was a little chaotic and the the, the organization just wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I just I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just kind of Yero's thing is similar to Ramos. It's probably tough to be consistent in a Real Madrid backline. But what what we're doing now visiting these old games, it's the equivalent of like someone twenty years from now going back and watching a really random game of like I don't know Real Madrid. Um, I don't know a way to. Yeah, to... that's what he was saying about young Luca. Yeah, I know. I I just want to reemphasize that point. Like, we we can't. So, not that we are doing this, but I mean, like, we're we're looking at we're looking at like the we know the legacies of certain players after the fact. But when we watch like one off games of them here and there, it's obviously not the best measuring stick. But I think this is why I I I put more emphasis on the bigger games. Let's say so, like Hierro at age thirty four, I think he was in his last year at Real Madrid playing against Manchester United. Um, like that's a good measuring stick. If we're if we're measuring Ramos, you know, we're measuring his Champions League final games and his games against Bayern in the semifinals and all those knockout games. And you know, pretty much for everybody, we're measuring them in the big games. And then, like on a on any given league game, we have no idea the variability that will occur. You know, like Benzema missing a bunch of sitters, Raúl missing a bunch of sitters, and or Laudrup having a bad passing game. But then, you know, we don't we we can't. It's hard for us to zoom out once we're watching these games. I think. So I totally, I think it's a good point to bring up. The equivalent is, you know, if the people are watching this 20 years from now, watching a random Real Madrid game from this year, they'd be like, what the hell, this three-peat, <laughs> this European three-peat team would, could, would not survive in our era. Like, I think, it's, I think it's fair to point all that out that, you know, that's, this is how difficult football is. This is like, you know, this is, um, this is why legacies and patience is required and we're looking at over the course of, you know, careers and stuff it's it's we have to look at it holistically but you know one-off games it's it's you know it's interesting to see the fragility of of even the greatest players of all time i think one one thing that's worth mentioning um i think every time we watch like a classic game is just kind of um explaining how different you know things are from how things are played now um, which can so- count, sound kind of repetitive, but like I'll I'll link it to kind of defending we're talking about, like because we were talking about how chaotic it is. Um, you know, it was it definitely felt like a little extra chaotic, but I'm not sure how much more organized and ordered things would be on a normal day because that's just kind of how football was played, right? Like, you know, from what I gather from watching old games and you know from what I've read, like inverting the pyramid, like that type of midfield organization, you know, and that cohesiveness from the defensive structure that, you know, we think about, um, that, that we see, you know, in modern games today, it just wasn't that common at the time. It was kind of more of a situation. Like, that's why, like, football was so end-to-end then. And even then, if you look at, like, the Premier League into, like, the late 2000s, you know, was super end-to-end because it was this idea of, right, like, just ping the ball up vertically as fast as possible and just keep going, keep going. And so, like, the role of players in those days was really in, like, what we would consider more organized possession play would be to kind of always be operating in chaos. So, like, the way I'd say defending is different then than it is now is now so much of it is about, you know, making sure you're tactically organized in relation to your midfield and then defending high lines, defending space, defending space in behind the fullback, you know, from, like, a, a standpoint of pressing. Whereas, like, back then, it's, it's like, if you're a defensive line, you're generally on your own, which is kind of, like, why the anchorman position was so important back then. Like, you had to have a Redondo, you had to have a Makalele, because everyone else would just kind of do their own thing. And when they attack you, it's pretty easy to bypass the midfield. Like, this has been consistent in all the games I've, I've watched, whether it's transition defense or not just a couple passes you're past them past the midfield and you're at the back line and it's a lot more of like you know one versus one defending in that situation and kind of defending like three versus four four versus four in those types of situations um you know forget real madrid even just looking at real zaragoza like their midfield line didn't have any organization right like kike sanchez flores had so much space because their you know their forward midfield would just narrow inexplicably you know, and you just switch the you just switch play and pass to, to pass to Kike. And I honestly thought we could have exploited Kike a little more just because of how narrow that line was. And I'm just not sure, aside from a couple coaches and aside from maybe like in that period of Serie A, that like coaches really thought about defense 
as everyone being involved and in terms of like structures rather than you just kind of like say well we're going to defend in a 4-4-2 and then you just kind of see how it plays out and you know basically say well i hope my defenders win all the individual duels like i'd say it's very very different types of defending just basically because of like the way tactics were like thought of at the time and that's definitely something to keep in mind and like i think it's why like if you catch here on a particularly bad day it can look really really awful especially when the rest of his teammates aren't playing well because they're even on the best of days like the midfield just doesn't cover for the defense in the same way we think it does because it, it just didn't happen from like a cohesive like approach you like you just don't think of like you know okay we're going to defend in like a you know a 4-3-3 in this in this stage of the game and then we drop back you're going to drop back the wingers are going to come deep the, the center will become more narrow we're thinking about compactness here and there i just don't think that's how it was thought of back then and which is why it's a lot more chaotic and which is why like you know that organized the organized type of like midfield play just didn't really exist like even Cruyff right like Cruyff's form of possession play was a lot more direct than people think about like it's he wanted to like hit the last line as quick as possible that was just the mentality that existed then I think these are great points go ahead Matt yeah and this I'm gonna um say this one point and then you guys can take it from there because I gotta go but um this was I think um to your point I think what makes it even more interesting about all this is like you see certain players kind of transcend through different eras, right? So like even with Raul, who we're talking about, he's 17 here playing with Lodrip, Hierro, Sanchez. And then fast forward to 2009, he's playing with Cristiano Ronaldo. He's playing with Kaká, Xabi Alonso, like, and he's playing in a, in a totally different era. And, it, and it's really interesting to see because even I had a note even about um, Buyo, the goalkeeper. He's 36 at this point. Uh, the game we watched the other weekend, the 1988 game, he was uh, 31, 30, uh, 30 years old, and they had the back pass rule, right? Well, the back pass rule is no longer in play in this game. And every time the ball went back to his feet, how awful were his feet? I mean, he just lumped it up the field. Mm-hmm. He wasn't comfortable. He had played his whole career with the back pass rule. And so now uh, he had to adapt and obviously struggled. Um, and it, And it's funny to see, like, how – these, some of these players can play through multiple eras, and maybe you guys can build off that. But I, I gotta, um, I gotta leave. So, all right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Talk soon. Yep. See you, Matt. I didn't realize what time it was until I honestly, if, I didn't realize you were talking about this song. But I, it's great points. I think I want to pick up on it a little bit too. Um, I think we can't discount the fact of just just how much tactics have evolved in the last ten years alone. Um, like this whole new era of coaches with Guardiola and Klopp and all these guys, uh, it really it puts you gives you into gives you perspective of like how quickly managers can get outdated. Like the idea that managers can decline. Part of it is because like a lot of these old school managers they they didn't have access to data and like in heat maps and being able to adjust things in game on the fly. Um, be at as as a. I guess as a course of like how analytics, like what analytics tell us in the game, but also even apart from that, when you when the evol- when the game evolves so quickly, some of these older managers become dinosaurs. Like they can't adapt and they're they're stuck in their way, so it's hard for them to to continue succeeding at a, at a high level when these younger coaches are coming in and they they bring all these new things to the table. But I think it's really like. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the game has completely changed since like 2009 and on. Um, even going back to the Galacticos era, the, talk, the tactics were not that complex. And it's funny, I was, maybe this is not the greatest example, but when I was when I was doing a deep dive on Vanderlei Luxemburgo yesterday, um, literally verbatim one of his tactics, he said, he, he said when he first came in was, the, the plan is to, when you get the ball, you either get it to Zidane or OG Ronaldo, and that's it, and then let them create. And that was some of the offensive <laughs> tactics that he had, and this was, you know, this was for, for him and the team revolutionary because they didn't even, beyond that, they didn't have anything to build off of um, in that era. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, I remember Alan Smith was on this podcast, the, the former Arsenal player, and obviously maybe most kids now know him as the voice of FIFA. And uh, he was... He was almost I don't I wouldn't say he was offended, but like I kind of brought up this idea of like, like you know, tactics have changed and you know, pressing has become more intense and more 
and a bit better. And he was like, you know, we pressed in my day. And I was like, and I kind of, now that like going back and watching some of these, these older games, you know, the, I guess the cohesive press, that it, I didn't really see it. I think the closest thing I've seen to a team that really looks like it would fit well modernly was that Juventus team we watched a couple of weeks ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't really see the tactics that complex the more I look at it. Yeah, I think I think it's really hard just psychologically to be able to understand how things evolve over over vast periods of time relative to us, obviously, um, because it's happening slowly. It's like it's like you can't really tell that you've grown taller, right? Like unless you have like a growth spurt over the summer, but you just don't like notice it. But right? then your like, grandparents sort of see you after and, like two years and like, wow, I think right. it's the same analogy. Yeah, and so, like, and it takes for us for games to really go back and see and be like, oh, wow. Like, even to me, like, you know, forget going back all the way, like, to, you know, 1995. When I go back to games from, like, 2010, that's that's 10 years ago. Like, now that I say that, it's like, that is actually a long time to go back. But I go back to games 2010, which is kind of when I started watching, and it's like, wow, I just was not conscious of the fact that even in this span of time, it's evolved quite a lot, right? Like, when we're talking about, like, you know, tactical evolutions, I think Mourinho is actually one of the best examples for, like, how tactics have evolved from, you know, 90s to early 2000s into the 2010s and into a period where it kind of looks like Mourinho is getting outdated, right? Because Mourinho did very much come, he was trained by Van Hall. he came from the 90s school of thought, and I think the reason Mourinho was so good and he outclassed so many people, you know, mid-2000s mid to kind of early 2010s is because he thought of defending in terms of structures. He thought of defending in terms of compactness. It wasn't simply, you know, having Claude Machiavelli at Chelsea, you know, and being like, all right, we attack. And when when the other team attacks, like, I just make sure my defensive line is organized and I have a midfielder, you know, who, who, who will clean things up. No, it was everyone had a certain position. And based on where the opposition team had the ball, everyone had to be positioned this way. And offensively, you know, it was it wasn't so much about, you know, you just get the ball to the creative player. You know, he had some patterns. It was like you play the ball wide, you know, and then, you know, we we work it back deep and you try to play these vertical passes into the attacking midfield and you have combination play and you move up. And so like that, you know, for the time that that it that existed, that was a much more cohesive way of playing both on and off the ball that just took, you know, the Premier League by storm. And then he came to La Liga, he, you know, implemented that system at Real Madrid and we blew teams away. But what we see now, and this is truly unprecedented, I think the amount of um, intricacy that is now required in possession systems is it's not just about having good attacking players and just playing passes into them. Because people saw what Mourinho was doing. They're like, well, maybe we should defend that way. You know, we defend really compact. We'll defend deep if we have to. And, you know, we'll do everything we can to prevent you from making those passes into the creative players. So now it's not just about, you know, having Chabi Alonso play a vertical pass into Ozil. It's about how do you shift the entire defensive structure and manipulate it in a way so that your passing options are open. And that takes a next level of organized possession play that that basically what we're talking about is positional play, which is even coaches who, who are not positional play coaches are now like barring elements from it. Like I, I'd say Zidane to a certain extent. Yeah, I, th- I so definitely like, think we've that, seen Zidane that, do stuff like that, especially like against Barcelona uh, twice this season. And and then it, on top of that, you see you see defensive defend defensive lines getting better because they know how to react to that as well. And so I think everything's just. Everything's just a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe a little bit is even underplaying it. I think it's, I think it's the game has grown ex- exponentially in terms from a tactical level in the past ten years or so. And it's it's amazing how it depends on just a couple coaches, right? It's like we play the way we play, and then one coach comes in and decides, actually, I know a better way. And for a couple of years, it's like the league is completely behind, and they're like. Uh, you know what, let's copy, right? In La Liga, that was Cruyff, you know, and it, in, you know, the Premier League, it was Mourinho, and then Guardiola came came into the situation, and now it's Klopp. Now it's Klopp, Guardiola, it's Pochettino. Like, we're in a situation where we have so many coaches. It's Nagelsmann, honestly, you could say right now is the most innovative coach in the game, 
like we're in a situation where we have so many talented era defining coaches still you know i'd still say still in their peak right i think guardiola klopp you know still very much in their primes and then so many young guys coming up behind them who are influenced directly from the way they play that we might be able to just keep pushing football tactically forward in like ways in 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 at a speed that we haven't seen before because like previously we're talking about like changes over decades now i'd say like changes over like three or four years because even going back to like 2015 and watching how like you know possession systems were played we didn't teams didn't press at nearly the same level as they did in in 2015 as they do now so like yeah that's i i always have to keep that in mind when i go back and watch some of these games and i'm like well this is super chaotic and i have to really like step back and put myself in the time period and be like well this is this was kind of like the tactical like um, assumptions that were then, and this is how it was played. And then I have to evaluate, you know, the players within that type of system. And I think that's the only way you could really be fair, as opposed to just going back and being like, well, this is trash because they don't play like exactly the way like I I see them play like thirty years later. It's interesting because so often, and I mean, I, there's two sports I really follow: football and basketball. And in those two sports, you see often a narrative from, like, younger kids who are like, oh, you know, obviously this player from my era was better because the one from your era that was older, the game was different than defending was worse. Like, the amount of, the amount of people that slandered, like, 90s basketball players because the defending was, quote-unquote, soft and it was easy, blah, blah, which is nonsense anyway. But um, you, see, you see it in football, too. It's like, you know... How can that player from the 90s or 80s be better than this player now, like from this generation? And I think, I think it's unfair to punish those players because the game was different. I think this is why I always just try to give the benefit of the doubt. In my, my theoretical world, which can't really be proven, and I can't prove it either, so I don't even know if I truly believe it, but I, I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt that like, if you put, I don't know, like a legend like Di Stefano, if he... If you grew up in this era, not even put him in the time machine and bring him forward to this era, but literally, like if Di Stefano was born now instead of in the fifth, in whatever age he had, whatever he had to be born in to be uh, playing in the fifties, like the twenties or whatever. So if he was born, let's say, um, I don't know, twenty years ago, and he's a twenty-year-old breaking through now, I would just like to believe that his brain and his talent would figure out what today's football is and be as great as he was and be regarded as one of the best players of all time again. So and I and I feel like that could be replicable to to any player of the past. That's why I don't like to punish players for just simply playing in a different era because obviously they are not going to have a huge influence on the tactics that the team they, you know, the team that surrounds them with is is uh, is playing and the managers that coach these teams and and in so many cases how many times have we seen, you know, Ram just flip coaches in in the middle of the season, coaches with different identities, and by the time you get settled, some of the tactics are good, some of them are bad, some of them are clearly outdated and just not progressive at all. And I just feel like sometimes we punish players for that. And I, I just like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they would all, even all the former great players would rise in this era too, and they would they would adapt. Now I could be yeah, wrong, I think, but I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I think like the fairest thing to do is just judge relative to era but if you want to play the game and i I don't think it's like necessarily wrong to right because it's all just like for our own entertainment and intellectual fulfillment at the end of the day it's like if you want to play the game like how this player transitioned to i think you just got to look at skills like look at look at the like first assign like a role or roles you think that this player would play in the modern game and then just think about do they have the skill sets to fulfill it. So for like Di Stefano, for me, it's like I think about it for one second. I'm like, yeah, this guy could 100% translate to the day. Like I don't think he would be as much of a total footballer just because I just think in how physical the game is today. Like I just don't think he could He'd play every single space. position at the same time. Like, Right, yeah. But he would definitely be some type of central midfielder, attacking midfielder type who I think would absolutely thrive because he was he was absolutely ahead of his time in the sixties. Like the way he controlled the game, the way he the way he like the way Real Madrid played was way closer to a modern possession game than the games I've seen in the eighties and nineties, and that's like just because of Di Stefano. So the absolute would like transfer. It's like it's so like a lot of the attacking talent. Like I think like. 
you know, Zidane would, because there's always a place for like these creative attacking midfielders. Like you can always fit them in. Um, it, my question is more about like defenders and like defensive midfielders. Like Claude Makalele wasn't terrible on the ball, um, but you know, I just I just sometimes question like in like the pressing. Like we see Casemiro sometimes struggle with the pressing systems. If Makalele was like intensely pressed by like say Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool, how would he handle it? So like I I still think you would translate, but maybe some there's some limitations that are opened up that didn't exist before. Um, and then with certain defenders, I think like, yeah, I think certain maybe great defenders, you know, having to defend like in, in the certain situation that they like that exists now, maybe maybe it wouldn't be so. And then definitely, I think a lot of fullbacks, right? Like maybe the more defensive fullbacks of the past. I don't know if that necessarily cuts it right. Like in, in the modern game, you need, you know, even the average fullback, right? You think probably produces a lot more offensively than like the average fullback back then so like it's just i think thinking about skill sets and how they transfer and most players are great because they have multiple skill sets or they have a certain skill set that they're so good at that you can fit into any team that i'm often not worried about like well would, th- would this great player succeed like di stefano pushkas like i'm not i'm not really thinking about that like yeah obviously they would back to this game my favorite question to ask <laughs> on this podcast these historical segments is it's a segment I like to call what would Twitter say after this game? So you're doing the live tweeting for Raul's debut. He's missed like 10, 10 open nets. Uh, defensively, it's a mess. Luis Enrique is playing left back. What's Twitter saying? Well, Sack Valdano. He has this. This guy has, has no, no idea what, what he's, he's doing. doing. This lineup is awful. You know, like Kike may be good offensively, but he's bad defensively. So you know, like whatever whatever people say when Marcelo has a bad game, and then Raul, like, oh my, like I I am so glad this game did not happen in the age of social media <laughs> because it. You know, we already know we already know people don't care about like when a striker does like you know good stuff outside the box which is what caught my eye with Raul and I was able to be like yeah this is why this guy was a 17 year old getting a chance at Real Madrid because he's really damn good um him missing those five chances like it would have been like get this kid out of here like this Real Madrid isn't a place for like young kids to you know like you know you know like when Vinicius was playing bad right like this is not a team where we develop players we need you know, send him out on loan, sell him, like put him back in Castilla, have him develop there and have him come back when he's ready. Like that would have been that. And then Laudrup would have been like, oh, you know, this guy's just like, he's just fancy, you know, has all these like, he, he does all these flashy tricks, but Dribble you know merchant? what? He, he doesn't have, the, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have the steel. He doesn't have the desire, you know, like just get him out of here. And like maybe the only player that would have escaped some criticism was maybe Redondo actually. Um, who I was quietly impressed with. Like, I don't think this is like a 10 out of 10 performance or anything, but like, I just can't think of that many opportunities when he lost the ball when I thought like you shouldn't be losing the ball. There were like a couple of moments where he tried to initiate that were high risk situations anyway. But like his press resistance was really good. Like talking about the drop of the shoulder, like Redondo has that vibe to him, yeah, right? Like where definitely. he's such a big guy, you just don't think he should be able to glide past players the way he does and he does it anyway. And like, just when I think about the complete defensive midfielder and someone who could transition from era to era, Redondo is the first person that comes to mind. He's mobile, he's, he's big, he can dribble, he can pass. Like I, if there's one player, like if I, I wish I was born earlier for one reason, and that was just to watch Redondo in his prime. What's that meme that people post, like when Isco or Ceballos are on a counterattack, and it's just like one guy going in circles? Or like going backwards, <laughs> that would that I bet you they would pull out that meme for Lodrup, which begs the question: what would what would Isco's legacy be if it wasn't if it was like twenty years ago and not in the age of of uh, kids in their parents' basement tweeting memes about him? I wonder if his legacy would be like more. I don't know. I I feel like maybe he would be regarded a bit higher. Um, the other thing we could have done is after this game is. Is uh is made a video about Raúl's off ball movement, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and posted it. For it. I think people would lose their yeah. shits with us. Raúl apologists. Um, <laughs> Raúl can't score. 
Yeah. Uh, a, 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 play, a, a forward's job is not to move off the ball, it's to score. <laughs> Which is a similar narrative to what we received when we made that Benzema video. Um, okay, so is there anything... Now and now we're going to get slammed for comparing Benzema to Raul, but there you go. We're going to get slammed You win anyway. some, you lose some. Uh, is there anything else you want to discuss? Um, I guess we could just quickly go over what happened in the goals. Sure. Um, for Real Madrid, that is. Um, so, right, the first one was Amavisca did not have a good game, but he was involved crucially in both goals. So, like, in the 57th minute, Real Madrid make it 2-1, and Amavisca, like, just, you know, he he wasn't switched on, the you know, the, the previous 56 minutes, but in this moment, really quick throw in to Raul at the left touch line. Raul puts in a cross that's like just a little like ahead of where Zamorano would want it to be, but Zamorano adjusts really well, and it's it's a pretty gorgeous header that he manages to redirect on goal that just really, really impressed me, like just a pure like poacher's goal. Um, and then the second one... Um, was a free kick from almost, I think, the same place that Amaviska took the throw-in from. Um, Michel takes it. Uh, that was that was like the other cross I was thinking about. I knew there was one more. So Michel takes that, and then Amaviska just flicks it with the back of his head, and it just it flies past everyone. There's nothing the goalkeeper can do to stop it. So, yeah, Amaviska, basically the only two things he did ended up like directly resulting in two goals. Yeah, Um and uh, and I, I one thing that that I did want to say about also like because Zamorano scores the opener for Real Madrid and uh, and cuts it to two one, I think his obviously they ended up losing this game so it didn't matter anyway. But you needed someone like him who was lethal to kind of be like okay enough of these chances being missed. Like I'm clearly the best goal scorer on this team at this point. I led the team in scoring this year, and um, I felt like there was a at least a bit of. There was a bit of trust you could put in him to step up and score a, a chance, and he took it. He took it pretty well. I, you know, it was a ultimately wasn't that difficult of a chance, but it was difficult enough to like you know that he took it and it was impressive. And he opened the scoring. I thought <clears throat> again. I think Zamorano has been, you know, could you could kind of throw him into the underrated conversation of like never regarded as one of the strike the the team's best strikers ever. Um, he overlapped with a bunch of great players, and we barely talk about him. Was a hat trick hero of a of a Manita Mani, Manita Clasico, the only one Real Madrid ever gave Barcelona. Um, so, just really impressed with him every time he's played too. Um, I don't think I have any other notes. I'm just going through it now. Ultimately, this was a good team. They lost this game. They again, just to reiterate, they didn't lose again until May. They won the league. Barcelona finished fourth that year. Um, and they did, Real Madrid were not in the Champions League this, this particular year. They were out of the European Cup as it then it was because they came fourth in the league the year before. But um, it was a, this was a transition year, we have to remember. This was, even after they won the league this year, they, they weren't really in the clear. They still had problems in transition. And it wasn't until Lorenzo Sanz came along and signed Seydorf, Roberto Carlos, um, Panucci, and all these guys a year later where the team kind of started to be a little bit better and they ultimately won the Champions League. So um, won the league. They still were in this awkward transition phase um, where, you know, it was after the Quinta del Buitre, clearly. Those stars were fading. Butrogeni was way past it. You know, you, you see kind of Michel fading. Chendo had definitely faded by this point. He was barely playing. And there was this kind of with this weird transition um and it's a shame Laudrup only played two years at the club but um you know and then Laudrup leaves a year after so it's, it's it's kind of this weird time in the club's history but this particular game obviously was most noteworthy because Raul made his debut and it, it was a memorable debut all things considered anything else on um I mean I don't know how quickly this is going to be uploaded but if it is like fairly soon and people are listening to this immediately just be aware that um real madrid versus athletic bilbao i think in 1995 96 season or maybe Mm. 66 i think yeah it's 95 96 um will be on real madrid tv and it's supposed to be a louder master class um and since we talk so much about him you probably want to watch him so yeah um 
probably i mean even if you if you're not listening to this immediately you might catch a second half or something yeah go check that out if you have the time now pressures on me to get this uh this podcast uploaded quickly um all right so <laughs> um this was fun thanks um we'll be back i don't know what to say sunday we have a we have a show coming on tuesday to talk about more history stuff um that'll be over on patreon.com slash managing madrid we're going to talk about um, Di Stefano as the manager and some some other things that, like uh, Matt's article about you know, just British players. So, again, if you want access to that, patreon.com slash managingmadrid. You have to be uh, subscribed to that feed separately, so make sure you are. Otherwise, you won't get notified that it's coming out. Um, and keep it locked on managingmadrid.com. We have a lot of content still, even though there's no football. We have been, uh, we've been putting out things. So make sure you check everything out. Om, this was fun. Thank you. Talk soon. Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. Before we wrap it up, we just wanted to give a shout out to our $10 plus patrons. We really appreciate your support and uh, really wanted to send you guys some love. So shout out to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Balaccio, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rantakiro, Leon Savernakis, Christian Gonzalez, uh, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Elian Zacco, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Sad Omar, Oluwapamimo Oladonjoy, Christian Toff, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Raga Potluri, Jeff Thurston, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wanyi, Pena Maradista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Rafael Servier, Servia, Karen Scherer, Sumanshu Singh, Brennan Powers, Nelson Mazariego, Umar Mahadi, Rovi Tahiev, Anthony Armesto, Shabal Sharapov, Varun, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, Faisal Hamdan, Muksi Thangal, Sergio Arispe, Graham Gerard, Matan Baron, Kevin Rivera, Michael Cruchon, Zafar Chaudhuri, Keith Lizenby, Hassan Chowdhury, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Solomon Ortiz, Fabian Moreno, and Philip Hammer. Thank you guys so much for your support. Really appreciate it. And until next time, Hala Marie.